It's an image that's difficult to get out of your mind, no matter how much bleach you pour into your eyes. Hello, listeners. This is a special episode of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. Um, this actually has very little to do with Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I am Luke T. Harrington, and this is my show where I usually talk to people who have changed their minds. But um, this week, I got something a little special for you. Um, I have a book coming out. I've been working on it for years and I'm excited to have it finally coming out. Um, it's called Murder Bears, Moonshine and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed. It's finally coming out on August 25th from HarperCollins Christian Publishing. Um, and we thought it would be a fun little thing to give you the loyal listeners of my vaunted podcast, uh, a little preview of the audiobook. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't able to record the audiobook myself. That was the plan, but COVID got in the way. Um, stupid COVID. So um, uh, the audiobook was read by Jacob Lewis, who's a podcaster and radio host and editor down in Nashville. And if you like his voice, you might consider checking out his podcast, Neighbors. Um, so with that said, I'm going to flip you over to the excerpt from my audiobook. If you like it, please check it out at murderbearsbook.com. Here's Jacob Lewis. Chapter 1. I like biblical butts and I cannot lie. Butts, poop, and more. Whenever the existence of God is debated, John Dunn, Scotus, Thomas Aquinas, and others have actually argued that it's a category error to say that God exists, since God transcends existence and all existence flows from him, but you know what I mean. There's an old argument that keeps coming up on the pro side, called the teleological argument proposed and developed by such great minds as Socrates, St. Thomas Aquinas, and Kirk Cameron. Two out of three ain't bad. The argument at its core is this. Everything in nature appears to serve a clear purpose. Therefore, it must be designed for that purpose. Therefore, there must be a designer. See Xenophon Memorabilia 1.4, Thomas Aquinas Summa Theologica 1.2.3, and then Google Kirk Cameron banana argument. Boom, God exists. An open and shut case, right? Haha, <laughs> no, of course not, because the teleological argument, for all its insight, overlooks a rather obvious question. Does everything in nature serve a clear purpose? Not only is nature itself evidently purposeless, but it has all sorts of features that seem to serve no purpose at all, like the human appendix, male nipples, and light jazz music. All too often, the believer will think he has his skeptical opponent on the ropes only for said skeptic to bust out an anatomy textbook, or flip the radio over to Smooth Sounds 103, thus rendering the believer defenseless. It occurs to me, though, that there's a fairly obvious response to this challenge that goes woefully underused, 
maybe God just has a sense of humor. There's no reason we have to imagine God as an obsessive engineer fine-tuning the universe into some sort of hyper-efficient machine, designed to do what exactly? Maybe the big guy is also part comedian, filling the earth and the cosmos with things that serve no purpose at all other than to be hilarious. Would you want to live in a world where something as entertaining as a light jazz saxophonist with saggy man nipples and an exploding appendix could exist? I know I wouldn't. Which brings me to butts. After all, what purpose does the human butt serve aside from being hilarious and helping us look sporty in G-strings? Yes, Neil deGrasse Tyson, we're aware that defecation rids the body of toxins and the gluteal muscles are necessary for locomotion, but doesn't it say something that our bodies accomplish those things with a device as hilarious as a butt? That we all walk around with a little perpetual comedy machine attached to our bodies, just waiting to inject some hilarity into life with a well-timed fart or an accidental mooning? I already know what you're going to say. Obviously, any reasonable person would find a butt hilarious, but how can we possibly know God does? Your addition to the teleological argument is absurd, and you'll die sad and alone. Well, first off, that was hurtful. And second, if you doubt that God finds butts funny, all you have to do is read his book. What's funny is, of course, always in the eye of the beholder. But you don't have to look far in the Bible before you come across an arguably hilarious instance of a butt, or some poop, or a butt making poop. For instance, David to Saul, I saw your butt making poop. Everyone knows the story of David and Goliath, but if you've spent much time reading the Bible, you also know David is one of the Old Testament's A-listers, with countless adventures that sprawl across multiple books. Unlike the Goliath narrative, though, many of these stories are less than Sunday school ready. And yes, many of them involve poop. There's a rivalry in 1 Samuel between David and King Saul. But it's only a rivalry in the sense that the Lakers and the Clippers have a rivalry. That is to say, only one of them knows about it. Saul is Israel's king. And David is the God and country boy scout type who just wants to do whatever he can to support his monarch and his motherland. Unfortunately for David, Saul is a relentlessly paranoid politician who's convinced everyone else in the room is out to usurp his throne. This is particularly bad news for David who, as Saul's court musician, not only frequently finds himself in the same room as Saul, but has also been prophesied to usurp Saul's throne. This all leads Saul to fly into a murderous rage and start chasing David through the countryside. Actually, that happens multiple times. It's a thing. At one point, David and his men get tired of all this running for their live stuff and decide to hide in a cave for a while. Unfortunately, Saul has the same idea. Well, sort of. And he came to the sheepcoats by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. 1 Samuel 24.3, King James Version. I'm going to be using the English Standard Version of the Bible for most of this book, but here I went with the King James because it uses a more literal translation of the original Hebrew which, as is frequently the case, is charmingly euphemistic. For the moment, ignore the part about sheepcoats, 
which I believe are stylish jackets for the discerning ovine gentleman. What I want to talk about is the phrase, cover his feet. To cover your feet means exactly what it says. It means you're covering your feet with your pants because you're pooping. So David and his men are hiding in the back of the cave. Saul comes in and fails to notice them. And then David and friends are trapped in the shadows watching Saul take a dump. It's an image that's difficult to get out of your mind, no matter how much bleach you pour into your eyes. Insert obligatory legal disclaimer here. But the upside for David is that he's literally caught his mortal enemy with his pants down, as his men helpfully point out. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Verse 4a. It's a little hard to think of something more embarrassing than being killed by the guy you were trying to kill while you were in the middle of pooping. But fortunately for Saul, David remains ever the Boy Scout. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 4b. So despite his phenomenal good luck, David can't bring himself to do anything beyond a bit of casual property destruction. Actually, there's the possibility that this was a bit more than that. It may have symbolically been an attack on Saul's authority. The corners of garments had special significance. Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 through 39. I have no idea how close to poop ground zero he has to get to accomplish this, but let's assume it was very close, because that's funnier. Conscientious as he is, though, he soon starts to feel guilty for doing even that much. And afterwards, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Verses 5-6 through I mean, calm down, kid. There's such a thing as being too squeaky clean. Anyway, David tracks Saul down and shows him the robe swatch to prove that, one, he could have killed him if he'd wanted to, and two, he saw him poop. Saul is so profoundly embarrassed by the whole thing that he promises never to try murdering David again. Then he tries to murder him again, like two chapters later, because that's how Saul rolls. That's one way to deal with crappy people. In the prophecy of Malachi, God rebukes some corrupt priests in an, um, colorful way. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Malachi chapter 2 verse 3. This kind of makes sense when you consider that Israel's priests were in charge of sacrificing animals, and animal intestines tend to be full of crap. Actually, the law of Moses is full of very specific instructions about what they can and should do with said crap. Apparently, these priests were also full of crap, and God wanted to let them know this as forcefully as possible. Ezekiel Bakes Some Poop Bread In the fourth chapter of Ezekiel, God asks the title character, who's something of a full-time prophet and part-time prop comic, to show the people of Jerusalem just how serious he is about destroying their city. So serious, you guys. 
Step one is apparently to play with blocks. As God puts it, And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you, and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it, and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it. Set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. I'm not 100% sure how to lay siege to a brick, but I'm fairly certain 10-year-old me would have loved it. In any case, it fails to get the point across, because a couple of verses later, God is telling Ezekiel to try something else. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. Verses 4 through 5. Naturally, Ezekiel wonders what he's supposed to eat while he's spending more than an entire year acquiring bed sores. But God's got that part covered as well. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. And you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. Verses 9a and 12. In other words, take the trash grains nobody wants to eat, bake them over your own flaming crap, or somebody's flaming crap, and then eat the whole greasy E. coli-soaked mess. And while lying around and eating literal garbage is what we call the weekend in America, at the time it was quite an insult. Ezekiel isn't about to take it lying down. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now, I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Verse 14. I have to tip my hat to Ezekiel here. It's apparently not eating crap-baked garbage per se that bothers him. It's just that it's not kosher under the Mosaic dietary laws. God rolls his eyes, mutters, Geez, why do I get stuck with all the pious yahoos? I mean, I assume. And then gives Ezekiel the concession he's apparently looking for. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung, on which you may prepare your bread. Verse 15. The compromise is to still eat the same bread and still bake it over poop, but just use cow poop instead, a compromise that Ezekiel seems fine with. If I were Ezekiel, I would have pointed out that this compromise was literally bullcrap, but I guess that's why Ezekiel got to be a prophet and I didn't. Let me be clear, though. This whole demonstration isn't just a weird excuse for kosher cobraphasia. Who needs an excuse, right? If you're confused about the point God is trying to make, you can read the next verse. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. Verse 16. In other words, the subtext here is, Hey, look at the trash bread you'll be eating while your city is under siege. 
If you don't know what a siege is and you're too lazy to pick up a dictionary, it's when an attacking army blocks access to a city so that food and other resources, like firewood, can't get in. It's excruciating for the city dwellers, it's mind-numbingly boring for the invaders, and it very rarely involves Steven Seagal dramatically tying back his ponytail. If you're trapped in the city, it usually means starving until you become desperate enough to throw whatever scraps of food you can find into a pot and cook it however you can, as Ezekiel does. That would apparently be news, though, to anyone at the modern-day Food for Life Baking Co., who will cheerfully sell you a popular product called Ezekiel 4-9 Bread. It's made with all six ingredients listed in the passage and possibly baked over human feces. I mean, the promotional materials never say it isn't. It's almost like they just decided to open the Bible to a random verse and then base a product on it, which will sound entirely plausible to anyone familiar with the evangelical industrial marketing complex. It's kind of too bad they didn't open their Bibles to a different passage about siege food, though. Or else we could head over to Whole Foods right now and pick up some donkey head and dove poop meatloaf. And there was a great famine in Samaria, as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for eighty shekels of silver, and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Second King chapter six verse twenty five or some boiled toddlers. And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So he boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Verses 28 through 29. Or just this. But Rabshakeh said, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? Isaiah chapter 36 verse 12, King James Version. And yes, I deliberately used the King James again there so I could sneak the word piss into a Christian book. You're welcome. Rear Window, starring Charlton Heston. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses asks God to show him his full glory. God says, Um, you'll die if I do that, but... And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand, until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Exodus chapter 33, verses 21 through 23. And honestly, this raises far more questions than it answers. How big are God's hands? How much less impressive is his back than his front? Is God the anti-Kardashian? Steal the ark, get hemorrhoids. And speaking of war having weird consequences for people's butts, let's talk about the time the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant, right? From Raiders of the Lost Ark? In 1 Samuel, the Philistines steal it from the Israelites, and it doesn't work out super well for them. Specifically, for their butts. 
It starts when Israel decides to bring the ark into battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3 You'll recall from that Indiana Jones movie that the Nazis think the ark is some sort of superweapon that will make their armies unstoppable. But in the end, it just melts said Nazis' faces off. Israel is making the same basic mistake here, trying to use it as a magic enemy-defeating machine. The ark, though, is a symbol of God's presence, not a guarantee of his favor, and it proves worse than useless to Israel. The Philistines not only defeat them soundly, but also carry the ark away as booty. <laughs> they take it back to the city of Ashdod and place it in their temple next to their own god, Dagon. Because gods are collectible, right? As it turns out, though, God isn't huge into being treated like a beanie baby. Note to my editor, beanie baby jokes are still funny, right? Have someone look into that. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 3. They wake up and see their god literally bowing down to the ark they just brought home as a trophy. There's a clear message being sent here that the god of Israel is not one to be trifled with. The only real option is to pack up the ark and take it back to Israel, which... So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Verse 3b. Or just shrug and act like nothing happened. That works too. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Verse 4. At this point, God isn't likely to win any awards for subtlety, but the Philistines still aren't getting the message. So he ups the ante and lets loose a plague specifically, a plague on their butts. And it was so, that after they had carried the ark about, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had emeralds in their secret parts. Verse 9, King James Version. I'm quoting again from the King James here because it uses a word you don't see in any other Bible translation or for that matter, almost anywhere in the English language. Emirates. Most modern translations just say boils or tumors in this verse. And in fact, the Hebrew word is ophelim, which is probably best rendered swellings. Samuel Kotick, Medicine in Ancient Hebrew and Jewish Cultures. In Medicine Across Cultures, edition Helene Selin, Berlin, Springer Science and Business Media, 2003, 305-24. The apparent frat boys behind the King James Version, however, decided to get creative and use an old-timey word for hemorrhoids. There's a whole big boring etymological explanation for why it's spelled emeralds here. Briefly, emeralds comes from the old French word emoride, while the modern word hemorrhoid is a direct transliteration of the original Greek word hemorrhoid. But if you squint and say emeralds in a funny voice, you'll see it's basically the same word. 
In truth, the original Hebrew word is so vague that there's no way to know the true nature of the plague inflicted on the Philistines. Though it was probably still preferable to having their faces melted off, so there's that. Modern scholars have suggested that Ophelim could refer to anything from tumors to the bubonic plague, to the bites of camel spiders. Still, the idea that the plague was hemorrhoids isn't without precedent. In the Vulgate, St. Jerome's Latin translation of the Bible, he renders it as swellings of the secret parts. And there are times when God threatens hemorrhoids in the Bible. See Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 27, for instance. In any case, I'd like to make it clear that I'm firmly on the side of the hemorrhoids rendering. Not because of any linguistic insight I possess, but because I prefer whichever version allows me to make more butt jokes. Anyway, the Philistines proceed to pass the ark around to various cities, but the plague of hemorrhoids, along with a totally adorable plague of mice, follows it wherever it goes. Eventually, they take the hint that the ark is just going to be, wait for it, a big pain in the butt. And they decide to send it back to Israel to make it their problem. They don't want to send it back empty-handed, though. So they consult the priests of Dagon on what would make for an appropriate guilt offering. The priests come up with this charming suggestion. Five golden emeralds and five golden mice. Wherefore ye shall make images of your emeralds and images of your mice that mar the land, and ye shall give glory unto the God of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 4b through 5a, King James Version. Because what better way to give glory unto the God of Israel than with some 14-carat anus blossoms? And they say Philistines don't appreciate art. I have no idea what a golden representation of a hemorrhoid even looks like, though, seeing as there's not really a standard shape for the things. Rendering the word as boil or tumor hardly solves this problem either. And now I can't get the image out of my head of some poor, afflicted soul bending over and spreading him wide while a lucky Philistine craftsman hammers away at the gold, trying to get the shape just right. So thanks for that, King James. Beards, Butts, and Diplomacy in the 10th chapter of 2 Samuel, King David sends some messengers to Hanan, king of the Ammonites, as a gesture of goodwill. But Hanan isn't having it. So Hanan seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. Verse 4, NIV. They then limped back to Jericho with their butt cheeks flapping in the breeze. David helpfully tells the men to hide out at Jericho until their beards regrow. Strangely, though, the Bible never mentions whether he hooks them up with pants, so you can draw your own conclusions about his priorities. Elijah thinks your God is pooping. In the 18th chapter of 1 Kings, the prophet Elijah finds himself butting heads with the prophets of Baal an ancient Near Eastern god best known for not actually existing. They sure seem to think he's a thing, though, so Elijah proposes a wager. Each team will build an altar and put a sacrifice on it, and then they'll all wait around for their respective deity to set the things ablaze. Whichever one actually shows up for the barbecue is the real one. It's science. Baal's prophets agree to the arrangement, 
build their altar, and start praying for fire. It goes about as well as you're probably expecting. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Verses 26 and 28. I guess their interpretive dance is entertaining for only a few hours, because eventually Elijah gets bored and starts making poop jokes. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Verse 27. To relieve oneself, I'm sure you're aware, is a fairly common, if stodgy, euphemism for taking a dump. There are plenty of English translations that obscure the meaning here. But the Hebrew verb is sig, which literally translates to pursue or step aside, and almost always has a euphemistic connotation. Allah, see a man about a horse. Elijah's taunt more or less amounts to shout louder, he might be in the john. So it's probably good he never quit his prophesying day job for a career in stand-up. In case you're wondering, Baal never shows up to the party. Mid-afternoon, once the other prophets are lying around moaning and delirious from blood loss, Elijah figures it's as good a time as any to build his own altar. He piles up 12 stones, puts a bull and some firewood on top of it, and says, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Verses 33b through 35. So not only is he going to make God light up his own altar, but he's going to make it as flame-retardant as possible first because Elijah doesn't waste time on subtlety. Given the Bible's broadly pro-God stance, though, it's not entirely shocking that God comes through. Elijah says a few words of prayer. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord... He is God, the Lord. He is God. Verses 38 through 39. So God wins one for the proverbial gipper, and everyone in Israel converts back to the one true faith. Oh, and Elijah murders every last one of Baal's prophets, because people were hardcore in the Old Testament. we need to have a serious chat about how face-meltingly awesome St. Paul was. In his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul lists some of the things he gave up to follow Jesus. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, King James Version. 
When he says he suffered the loss of all things, he's not exaggerating too much, seeing as Paul was famously imprisoned and eventually martyred. On the upside, though, he says all the cool stuff he used to have was basically dung. Except he doesn't actually say dung, since the word in the original Greek is skubala, which most scholars will tell you is a vulgarity roughly equivalent to shit. Most modern translations neuter this passage even more than the King James, rendering skubala as either rubbish in the English Standard Version or garbage in the New International Version, which is too bad since it sort of obscures what a boss St. Paul was. The Book of Acts portrays him surviving shipwrecks and shaking off snake bites like some sort of ancient Samuel L. Jackson, but modern translators won't even let him drop an S-word. Isaac meets Rebecca while pooping. One of the Bible's best poop jokes happens fairly early on, in the book of Genesis, when Abraham decides to find a wife for his son Isaac. God promised Abraham more descendants than the sand of the shores and the stars of the sky, which is cool, but personally, I would have held out for a pony. So making sure his kid gets married off and makes some babies is kind of a big deal to him. That's probably why the whole thing kicks off with this charming exchange. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Genesis chapter 24, verses 2 through 4. Surprisingly, this moment where Abraham asks his servant to grab his thigh is actually not the butt joke here. In fact, there's a fair amount of consensus among scholars that Abraham is asking his servant to grab his genitals. Abraham is asking him to swear on his crotch the same way modern people might swear on a Bible. The Bible wasn't a thing yet, and you gotta swear on something, right? If that seems weird to you, and I'm not sure why it would, but if it does, The key here is that the oath the servant is taking is an oath to maintain Abraham's hereditary line. In other words, this is an oath directly related to Abraham's baby-making ability, so he's making this as clear to his servant as possible. You screw this up, you're not just letting me down, you're letting my balls down, so to speak. I know I promised you butts here. The thigh thing was just too good to ignore, and there wasn't really another place for it. Sorry. So let's press on. (laughs) After some ceremonial crotch grabbing, actually the text never says the servant obeys Abraham's command to grab his crotch. Maybe he refused. I hope Abraham wasn't weird about it. The servant travels to Abraham's homeland and picks up Isaac's cousin, Rebecca, who thinks traveling somewhere she's never been to, marry a cousin she's never met, sounds like a super idea. And they make their way back toward Abraham's neck of the woods. What follows feels like the prototypical meet-cute. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. 
So she took her veil and covered herself. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Verses 63 through 65 and 67. Aside from that stray bit of Oedipal weirdness at the end, this seems like it could have easily been a scene from a delightful rom-com, possibly starring some combination of Witherspoons and McConaughey's. Except, if you've figured out how this book works by now, you know I'm about to run it with butts. Oh, more to the point, improve it with butts. Let's start with the first bolded word, meditate. The word in the original Hebrew is la soah, which is rendered as meditate in most modern English translations only because biblical scholars aren't big on just inserting we have no clue and calling it a day. The word appears nowhere else in scripture and almost nowhere in other surviving ancient texts, making it difficult to translate. So what we've been left with until recently has been whatever the translator's wildest guess was. Everything from meditate to stroll to hang his head in shame over his father's habit of making servants grab his junk. Probably. It was only recently that scholars came across a cognate in Arabic that can be translated with a fair amount of certainty as to dig a pit. And if that sounds weirdly specific, just know that it's pretty much always a euphemism, occasionally for peeing, but usually for pooping. Because all that poop has to go somewhere. Once you learn that... It makes a lot more sense when you find out that the word rendered dismounted there is actually nafal, the Hebrew verb for to fall. Some classic translations, like Luther's German Bible, actually preserve this. We're not talking about a graceful dismount. We're talking about a woman looking up, seeing a guy too clueless to at least hide in the bushes when he takes a dump, and falling on her butt in the mud. Less Nora Ephron, more Three Stooges. But as you might have noticed in the last sentence of the passage, Rebecca and Isaac still go through with the marriage. So hey, happy ending. As long as no one asks how they met, I guess. God is super sick of stepping in your poop. The overarching narrative of the first five books of the Bible is one of God taking a bunch of recently freed slaves and turning them into a civilized nation. So we shouldn't be surprised that stuff like this keeps popping up in it. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 12 through 13. Yep, included in one of the very first sets of laws God gave to the Israelites is don't crap in the middle of the camp. And apparently, because it's gross, isn't enough of a reason for them either, because God immediately adds this. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Verse 14. It's not hard to imagine God thinking about explaining microbes to them before sighing, giving up, and turning into Dustin Hoffman. Because I'm walking here. Eud and the poop explosion. But maybe you're not looking for romantic advice from the Bible. Maybe you were hoping for a story about the dangers of stabbing fat people. I can help you there as well. 
This one is found in the book of Judges, which, if you're unfamiliar, tells the story of Israel's earliest days in the promised land. There's sort of a cyclical structure to it. One, everything is okay in Israel. Two, they start worshiping foreign gods just for fun, after super extra pinky swearing they wouldn't. Three, God allows a foreign power to conquer them as punishment. Four, they admit idol worship wasn't the best idea and ask God to save them. Five, God raises up a so-called judge, which in this context means a military leader, to save them. Six, the judge saves them. Seven, everyone goes back to worshiping idols like five minutes later. This all happens a dozen or so times in the book, which includes famous Sunday school-ready stories like Gideon and Samson. On the other hand, it also includes the story of Eud, which you won't be learning from a Sunday school teacher anytime soon. In this particular story, it's the Moabites who have conquered and enslaved Israel. After 18 years of paying exorbitant tribute to Moab's king, Eglon, Israel decides their situation sucks and cries out to God to deliver them. God says, ugh, fine, and raises up Eud, described in the text as a left-handed man. That detail might not seem important, but it's a thing. Here's why. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Eud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Judges chapter 3, verses 15b through 17a. The text doesn't say it explicitly because it assumes a basic knowledge of swordsmanship on the part of the reader. What, you don't have that? But the gist here is as follows. One, most people who have swords sheathe them on the hip opposite their dominant hand because it's easier to draw them that way. Two, since most people are right-handed, most people sheathe their sword on their left hip. Three, Eglin's guards would have naturally searched Eud for weapons, but since they usually dealt with righties, they apparently didn't bother to check both of his hips. This is doubly tragic when you consider that hips don't lie. Four, feel free to insert your own TSA joke here. Also, there's this. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Verse 17b. Like the left-handed thing, that bit of body shaming might not seem important, but it will come into play in a minute. Eud presents his tribute, and then he tells Eglon he also has a message for him that he can only deliver in private. Eglon says something along the lines of, Mm-hmm, yes, that sounds like a very legitimate, non-suspicious thing, and you are definitely not trying to murder and or proposition me. And then... And Eud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Eud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. And Eud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Verses 20 through 21. And before you can say, how in the world did someone as naively trusting as Eglon ever become king in the first place? Things go from bad to worse. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. 
verse 22. Ehud can't be bothered to pull his sword out, and the fat closes over the blade. Does that even make sense anatomically? Does fat even work that way? Do the laws of physics work that way? Maybe the Bible takes place inside an itchy and scratchy cartoon. Oh, and when the fat closes over the blade, the dung comes out. So if you stab a sufficiently overweight person in the belly, his belly will swallow the blade and he'll explode in a shower of poop. Now you know. Ehud escapes by essentially climbing out the window. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Verse 23. You'd think it would be only a matter of minutes before Eglon's guards find out what happened, chase Ehud down, and kill him where he stands. But you'd be wrong. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. Verses 24-25a When the guards hear the grunting and straining and smell the aroma of a dairy farm in the air, they just shrug and say, Ugh, he's taking one of his monster dumps again. And then waste countless hours arguing over who has to empty the chamber pot this time. Meanwhile, Ehud has plenty of time to escape, go home, raise up an army, and banish the Moabites from Israel for a solid 80 years. Because when God is on your side, you'll always smell the sweet scent of victory, which just happens to smell very similar to the scent of an overweight monarch literally pooping his guts out. And that's the sample, folks. Um, If you like what you heard and you want more, I'm sorry to report that you have to pay for it. Um, I saw that Disney just announced that the Mulan remake is coming to Disney Plus, but only if you already have a Disney Plus subscription and then pay another $30 for the privilege of watching Mulan. Um, I'm not going to do that to you. The book, the paperback edition, is just under $16, and you can pre-order that now wherever fine books are sold. Um, if you like the audiobook, it would come free with an Audible subscription. I'm not telling you to get an Audible subscription. I'm not sponsored by Audible, but it is a thing you can do. Um, now, if Audible wanted to slip me some money under the table, I wouldn't say no. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening, and I hope you consider checking out the rest of the book. You can learn more about it at murderbearsbook.com. Um, there you can read two sample chapters and you can find links to pre-order it. Um, I've also been told by my team that they're working on a fun Bible quiz you can take there. So that might be briefly entertaining, momentarily make your meaningless existence feel quasi meaningful. I don't know. It's worth a shot. You never know, but, um, I'm going to Go ahead and end things there. Um, I want to thank Jacob Lewis for reading the audiobook. Please check him out at neighborspodcast.com. I want to thank Raven Creek Social Club for hosting this show. Those guys are great. Check out their other shows, The Commentarians and Faith and Other Oddities. And finally, I want to thank you for listening to Change My Mind. And don't be afraid to change 
your mind. Thank you.